as a marketer, you want to have that belief that your product is delivering value or solving problems for your customers, because if it's not, things are going to go very well for you. I'm upset with Jeff just because we don't disagree and therefore the fight is canceled. Man, Sorry, folks. We got to find something else. Welcome to Page One or Bust, your ultimate guide to getting on page one of search engines. You're getting the website traffic, but not the conversions. Today's episode is a deep dive into content marketing that actually converts into qualified leads. We're talking to a marketer with over a decade of experience in communications and product marketing. Jeff Gavio, the head of demand gen at Gizual, is a data-driven conversion maestro. And today, Jeff talks about why marketers are making content that misses the mark and the steps you can take to transform your content into a conversion powerhouse. You'll hear advice that will help you craft content that seamlessly aligns with the customer journey, even after a sale is made, and how to integrate A-B testing into your content strategy. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Page One or Bust is brought to you by Demand Jump. Get insights, drive outcomes with Demand Jump. Get started creating content that ranks for free at demandjump.com today. And now here are your co-hosts, Drew Detzler and Ryan Brock. Welcome back to Page One or Bus. This is your co-host, Drew Detzler. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Brock. Ryan, how are we doing? Yo, oh, I, I'm having a baffling day, Drew. <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear about it. But first, let's intro our guest. I'm excited to have a, a fun conversation today with Jeff. Jeff Gavio, who is the head of demand generation for Gizual. Jeff, welcome to the show. Drew, Ryan, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. Same. I'm, I'm excited to have you on the show. It sounds like we're going to have a, a decent episode, probably. Let's not set the bar too high out of the gate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're here to win it. <laughs> Done. All right, Jeff, let's jump into it. Tell me a little bit about when SEO first came on your radar. So my undergrad degree was history and poli sci. So as I was in the insurance industry for seven or eight years and got to that, you know, fully grown up phase of being like, what do I want to be when I yep. become a, an actual grown up? I thought to myself, I should probably get some hard skills and something vaguely business Yep. focused instead of just a history and poli-sci degree so that I actually have a decent resume to produce to people if and when I want to make a career change. So I started my MBA at Villanova, and that was really my first introduction to SEO in a granular sense. I was aware of the term. I, you know, obviously growing up in the Google era, I was familiar with how search works and had a basic understanding of how results are returned to you as a searcher. But I took a marketing analytics class pretty early, maybe my second or third semester of my MBA program with uh, an instructor called Jake Pacini, who was younger than me. He was a marketing wizard. It was a, a little bit of a getting old moment when my <laughs> professor was yep. younger than me. But he walked us through, you know, basically the ins and outs of marketing analytics at both a high and granular level. So everything from building dashboards in Tableau to using Excel more effectively as a marketer. But he placed a huge emphasis on search because that was where his background was. Yep. Creating demand for consumer-focused businesses, which was a world that I had never worked in before. And so he introduced us to the Google Analytics suite. We got analytics certified. We were actually able to use Villanova's website as sort of our sandbox. And that was when they won the yeah. um, men's national basketball yeah. championship. So there were like wild spikes in traffic that we got to sort of study and analyze. And it was all very cool. And then when I moved on to my next role after the insurance world, which was being a director of marketing for a managed IT services firm, I was responsible for all things marketing, including generating demand, generating leads to pass to the sales team. And so I was actually managing a live Google account at that point, managing both the SEO side of things for organic traffic, managing our 
paid strategy. And I've been doing that in the subsequent two roles that I've worked in as okay. well. Woo! Got it. That's impressive. And I'm, 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 I'm extra impressed by your desire to like have a degree that's worth something because I never did. I, I've always been just fine with that decision. I see your motivation, you know, your, your ambition here. And I'm wondering if I've screwed up somewhere along the way. <laughs> no, no, probably not. I've listened to some of the, the past episodes you guys have done. So I know that I'm amongst friends here with like the liberal arts background. Yep. And yeah, the MBA experience was, was very cool and it definitely opened a few doors for me. But, you know, my recommendation to people, because then people ask me, was it worth it? Should I do my MBA? And I'm like, you have to have like sort of a discreet plan for yep. it. If you're thinking about taking out a cool, you know, 75 grand in student loans or something. Also find a company that will pay for it. That's also yeah, very helpful. Yeah, big time. That's key. Jeff, I can already tell that you and I are like-minded in that we're both an- analytics and we're metric focused. We'll have to have Ryan uh, pull some creativity out of us uh, throughout this episode. No, I was going to say, like, I, it's, I can it. count on one hand the number of marketers I know who, like, say, use Excel more effectively with, like, a, a little tinge of pride in their voice, right? They're, they're like, yep. excited about using Excel. Drew is one of them, and now, Jeff, you're another. Maybe you're the only two. I don't know. <laughs> sure, I love it. Very sure. I love but it. But it's, like, I, yeah. I, I, love, I love people like you, like both of you, because, like, I... It's so important, like, just making sure that like too many marketers don't even ask the question, like, are the things I'm doing right now actually like data driven? Like, are, are it feels like it is. I'm looking at numbers. Am I doing the thing that's going to actually help me get the conversions I need? I feel like yeah, there's not enough analysis happening. Too many people are just saying, well, I'll just write something and put it out there. And hopefully you get some traffic and who cares if it's bad. Yeah, definitely. That that data driven piece of not just generating traffic, but generating quality traffic, and even taking it a step further, generating quality conversions that you can then turn into qualified leads for your sales team. That's generally speaking, you know, the top line job description for what I've been doing for the last seven years. Yep. Why do you think that's such a common challenge for marketers in general? Like you're talking about like not not writing content for the kid who isn't going to buy from your business to read, but writing it for the person who's going to convert. Like, what are some of the reasons why, why that's a challenge out there for people? I know that like in our world of pillar-based marketing, it can take a long time to find the right kind of pillar topic that has a network of search behavior that is actually reflective of somebody who's in need of a solution that, you know, the business in question can offer. Why do, why do you think we all struggle with that? Marketers, if we're being honest, a lot of the times are generalists. You know, we're, we are creatives. We're coming at a, at a question or a problem from sort of a creative mindset of, hey, look how cool it is and what does it do? Whereas when you're selling enterprise and especially selling high tech solutions, you want to be coming at it from here's the problem it solves for you. And here's why that's beneficial to you. Presenting value based outcomes in your content and not getting bogged down on the product marketing of like, this is the hot new thing and everybody should buy it because it's so cool. I think that that works very well for consumer products. But when you're in the enterprise world selling B2B, executives are much more concerned with, well, how is it going to impact my top and bottom line? Are my people going to be able to use it effectively? How much is it going to cost and how much is it going to save me? To give you one quick example, one of the products that I used to market was augmented reality. So if your content is just focusing on augmented reality, you're going to get people who are looking for meta and the metaverse. You're going to get people who are looking for a video game and you're going to get people who are looking for industrial solutions to use in like a warehouse or use an engineering solution which is what we were doing. But if you write a poorly crafted blog or a blog that kind of misses the mark, you're going to get all of those, the unfiltered masses coming in of like, hey, augmented reality is really cool. I'm searching for it. Let me read this blog. Your traffic numbers are going to spike and look incredible, but your conversion rate is going to be very, very poor. And then ultimately 
as a performance marketer, the people that you report to are going to say, hey, how come nobody's clicking on this? How come nobody's filling out this form? How come we're not getting any leads off this? The traffic's tremendous. What's going on here? And then you kind of have to work backwards from there and figure out you know, where you went wrong and try to repair that mistake. Yeah. One of the things we, we see a lot of people fall into and that we advocate against is talking your own lingo. People people talking about a product or their service, the way they talk about it in-house. And, and you know, we urge them to speak the way their customers are actually speaking, the way their customers are actually searching and mm-hmm. use the lingo they're using. So that's one of the um, pitfalls we see people fall into. Let's use an example here, Jeff. You have a blog that is driving significant traffic. It's you know, We all have them, one of your top five traffic drivers, but it's not converting nearly the rate that, that other pages are. What what are your first steps in attacking that piece and making it more of a converter? Yeah, I think you have to examine the traffic a little bit. You know, Obviously, a lot of things are fairly anonymized, but if you can drill down a little bit, there's a lot of very nifty tools out there and sort of the Google expanded universe that can help you drill down on where people are coming from as far as who to, you know, what's their organization. That way you can kind of get a sense of, are these people in my ICP? Are they in my customer profile, my personas that I'm trying to market to, or am I off base here? I also think taking a look at the conversion point itself is key because that's another sort of piece of content, right? Is your call to action is often overlooked because people spend so much time creating the post or the white paper or the content itself they kind of overlook, hey, is this going to be compelling to somebody? Is the language strong? Is it going to pull them in and actually get them to click, download, you know, share information? So those are really where I start. And there's there's really not always a magic bullet solution, but making sure that your traffic is in the right persona and making sure that the, the call to action is actually compelling to the people that you want it to be compelling to are two areas that I always start with and then kind of work backwards from yep. there. Makes total sense. All right. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start a fight between Jeff and Ryan. You guys are getting along really well so far. Finally. Good God. All, <laughs> All right. right. You guys are getting along really well so far, and it's kind of pissing me off. So mm. does every Neck crack? Right, does every go. high traffic piece need to be a converter? Does it need to be a high converting page? Jeff, what do you think? My, my answer would be okay. no. I think that there's a... There's a, there's a place for like a thought leadership sort of bent. And again, you know, going back to my experience, which is mostly enterprise and not consumer related or B2C focused, there is an advantage to positioning yourself. It's kind of like people are getting, getting away with something, right? If they're getting something for free, I like to think of the whole conversion process as information for information. You're exchanging information. You're giving your visitors or your traffic, your sessions, some sort of relevant information, hopefully, in exchange for their contact information with the, you know, then the unwritten understanding that you're going to be relentlessly hounding them via your sales team until they're <laughs> the death of the natural universe. But if you give it away, if you, you know, if you're sharing things on LinkedIn as an executive or you have a free download that's not gated or, you know, you have a, a blog that takes more of a thought leadership bent. I think that especially executives really appreciate that. And it's like, hey, this company or this organization really knows what they're talking about. I want to align with them. And it gives them, a, I guess, a, a level of comfort and security of they're really looking out for my best interests. And I think that as a marketer, you want to have that belief that your product is delivering value or, or solving problems for your customers, because if it's not, you know, things aren't going to go very well for you. So, yeah, the short answer is I, I think that there is a place for those types of content. All right. So, yeah, now I am pretty. <laughs> well, no, I was hoping Jeff would Jeff. say yes, but. <laughs> I'm upset with Jeff just because we don't disagree and therefore the fight is canceled. Oh, Sorry, folks. We got to find something Sorry, else. Sorry, folks. Yeah, no, I mean, to me, obviously, like the, the, the sort of true north that guides what I do in the pillar based marketing methodology is 
topical authority. Like building topical authority is is the way of the future. Like you have to do it. Google understands how people tend to learn about different topics and they expect the truly exceptional publishers to listen to the market and to provide what the market wants. And so answering the questions that are going to drive some traffic but aren't going to necessarily convert right alongside those ones that will is very important. I, I yep. talk about it all the time. Google Google knows the difference between somebody who's just trying to sell something and somebody who actually has value to provide and is an authority on a topic. Honestly, even the traffic isn't something that enters my brain until we're already done publishing our first batch of content on a given topic. Like I'm not looking at keywords based on like search volume at all. I'm looking at how important is this term for me to cover in order to generate topical authority. And the the fun thing about that is like you're targeting enough content in a pillar strategy that you tend to like get a good mix, like almost accidentally, right? Where you have like high traffic terms, you have some low traffic terms that are also like really easy to win. You have your conversion terms. And once you build topical authority, you can go back in and start really focusing on those high conversion terms and and those topics that are going to lead to sales. And you know that that content is then going to rank faster, rank better. So everything that you're doing comes back to Am I aligning to the customer? Am I giving value? And sometimes that means you can't just target the terms that are going to lead to sales. But both of you kind of covered helpful content. Generating helpful content is is, is most important in, in some instances, depending on where they are in their buying process. It's much more important than shoving them into a form or shoving them into a CTA click. So let's talk about that, that fine line of y- y- you have a piece that's driving good traffic, but you want to test to see if you can get it to be a converter without damaging what Google sees as, you know, that that piece's that piece's value. You've created a great piece of content. So helpful in fact that Google's ranked it high. You're getting a lot of traffic. How do you test to see, hey, can we get a few more conversions out of this without damaging its its value in Google's eyes? Is that something that you've uh, messed around with, Jeff? Yeah, just, you know, simple A B tests using automation technology and all the multitude of tools that we as marketers have access to nowadays. Most of my approaches in that arena have been pretty simplistic, but I think it is important to constantly experiment, even if it's a simple, literally column A, column B, let's run this for X amount of time and see which one performs better Then column B, column C, run that for X amount of time, see which performs better. You can mess around with things that might seem too simplistic to even make a difference, but I've seen a lot of success doing things like heat mapping and moving around the location of conversion points. And sometimes you're kind of surprised like that. A lot of people want to go like front and center right in your face, but sometimes a kinder, gentler approach, you know, putting it to the side or having it pop up at the bottom of a scroll instead of a third of the way down, you maybe don't get quite the volume or sometimes you do. Sometimes you're surprised by the raw volume, but going back to the concept of quantity versus quality, if you have an engaged reader who scrolls all the way to the end, conceptually, they're probably on board with whatever the content was trying to convey, and therefore they're more likely to convert at that point and have an interest for whatever you're trying to get them to convert towards. So that's kind of the types of things that I've messed around with, you know, positioning, language, verbiage, call to action positioning, and things of that nature, maybe more the technical sides of things rather than, well, I like um, what you, than strictly the content. I creative. like what you said there about, you know, kind of basic, simple things that you've tested because a lot of people overthink it and try to create some big, large A-B test where they, you know, A-B test the entire page. And a lot of times some of those tricks are more simple than you think. For instance, one of example on demand jump side is we were testing just the CTA verbiage of start, start free trial versus 
try it free. And true, the try it free verbiage, mm-hmm. you know, performs 70% better than start free trial for whatever reason, right? So just testing simple things like that oftentimes have a big impact. I'm curious, Jeff, how much attention do you pay to like a user's journey on your site as you're looking into conversions? Like, do you look to you know increase the amount of pages somebody might visit, for example, like make sure that you've got a lot of good internal linking to send somebody around? Like, do you find that people who visit more than one page of your site convert you know, more regularly than those who just come in and you've got like that one shot on goal to blow them away with a blog post and then they convert or not. Curious your findings on that. Yeah, it's a great question. It does seem to be beneficial for the areas that I'm playing in if people consume more content, whether it's causation versus correlation, you know, I'm still trying to figure that out because if somebody's got a big problem and they think you can solve it, you know, they're naturally going to try to consume as much as they can on that potential solution. But yeah, I mean, I I try to orchestrate content to naturally flow through some sort of journey for the customer. And I think that it's important to keep in mind that the journey doesn't end when the sale closes because now you're in a partnership with them. So you want to keep delivering that value and you want to keep giving them information or, or content or updates or whatever it is to keep that relationship strong. And that can take on a number of different forms. Sometimes it's one-to-one content where you're feeding them testimonials or feedback from end users at the account that's demonstrating the value that you're delivering. Sometimes it's just continuing to expose them to your content generation on the site. But yeah, I mean, the more content that you can get in front of somebody, the stronger that relationship is going to be and the more likely they are to remain a customer. I'll throw in that one of my favorite marketing metrics, maybe my favorite overall, is customer lifetime value because it really demonstrates, you know, you're getting the right personas in there, you're selling to them, you're closing those deals, and then you're going for, you know, five, eight, 10 years at a time instead of one and done. You know, software can be so transactional. And because I've spent, you know, the last six years of my life selling software, you see those people who buy something or they ask for the three month trial period on a prorated basis and then bounce. That's not who you want to be selling to as an enterprise. You don't want that churn rate. You want somebody who's going to be a true enterprise partner that you can rely on from a partnership and a revenue standpoint year over year. And that's where that content feedback loop kind of comes into play is keeping them engaged, keeping them interested, demonstrating your value, making it sticky so that they don't leave. I'm a big believer in customer success and marketing working hand in glove. And all of that that I just mentioned kind of really ties into that. You're going to be working with customer success or the account manager or whoever that point of contact for the relationship is to make sure that the customers are aware of all the value that you're delivering. You know, maybe there's an, an opportunity for an expansion down the line or something else, you know, upsell, cross-sell, all of that plays into it. So I'm always trying to keep that in mind when creating content. It doesn't stop at the at the conversion point. It doesn't stop at a close date. It's continuous through that relationship. I've always thought of content as a a magnet, right? You're attracting people, but it can also repel the right people if used well. Does that thought ever enter your brain? Like, do you like, do you think it's important in content to ever go negative to ever like say like if, you know, in, in certain ways, and I know that I do this and that's why I'm curious to see if others do it as well. Like to like make sure to put in the content, like examples of who your ideal customer is, even if you're not, it's not about saying like, this is who I hope you are reader. It's about like making assumptions about your reader based on who you want them to be. Right. And and identifying with those problems in a way so that if somebody comes and they realize that they're not that person, you know, it has a, the effect of like really just connecting with the right people, but then kind of being lost on the wrong people. 
has that entered your equation at all? Because I think it's fun and I think it's actually really effective, but I don't hear a lot of people talking about like more proactive, let's get someone who's not a good fit out of this funnel before they even get the chance to annoy our customer success <laughs> people, you know? Yeah, no, that I had not put that sort of vetting at this stage of the process and I love the idea of it and I might have to try it. Typically, you know, speaking broadly, the way that it's worked for me is you put the content out there, you put the conversion point out there, people convert, but there's never been for me until you just mentioned, it's sort of a cognizant, like, let me explicitly state this sort of firmographic fact or this profiling fact to let people self-remove from the process. But I think that there's probably a lot of value in that because we've all probably seen it as marketers. You know, the salesperson who comes back and tears you a new one because like, dude, all these leads you're giving me, none of these are qualified. I can't sell to these people. And, you know, then it's like, then you're going back and justifying to the CRO or whoever. It's like, listen, the the leads are converting. I know that they're not super high quality, but it is what it is. We have to go through the disposition process. So no, that might be something to, to experiment with in the future and, you know, maybe do an A-B test with it. Throw it (laughs) into a a little A-B testing content. A-B testing. I mean, bring it all back home. Yeah, we have found that, you know, we have found that in writing that way, if done properly, you, you can write with your ICP in mind, not explicitly for your ICP, but with your ICP in mind using examples that are more focused on your ICP and, and things like that. Yeah, that's a good way. What it can do is it can it can let your ICP know that you're, you're focused on them and also attract some of the fringe cases while also eliminating some of those folks that are so far off from from who you really sell to and they can self-select out. And it could be as like, like even outside of examples, it could be it could be as simple as saying, hey, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to come up with a metaphor off the top of my head. Maybe you're an enterprise business. You only want to sell to really hungry people, not kind of hungry people. So it's like, you know what it's your content reads like, you know what it's like. You're hungry every minute of the day. You need so much food. You might as well be a hippopotamus. <laughs> and we understand like we understand that problem that you have. If you, if someone comes in and they eat a normal amount of food, they're going to be like, this is weird. And they're going to leave. And like, I just think that there's power in that. <laughs> yep. I love the example. Yeah, this is an incredible concept. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to to toy around with this. This is really interesting. I love the example. So you mentioned some automation, Jeff. But one, one more question before we hit our lightning round. What kind of automation are you using in the, the content creation and optimization process? From a content creation standpoint, I have obviously dabbled in your chat GPTs and bards and things like yep. that. I have used it and I find it effective in some ways and not so effective for others, but I think it's an interesting tool because I'm currently at a startup where I'm the marketing yep. guy, literally the only one who's doing marketing stuff. Obviously, any way I can gain an edge or gain efficiencies, save some time is is useful to me. So, you know, if I'm coming up with content ideas and I'm like, listen, I know that I can just show this to Bard or I can put these ideas or bullet points in and it'll give me a rough draft and then I can re-edit it before I post. That probably saves me 20 minutes, I don't know, 30 minutes. It's helpful. It is helpful. And then, you know, down the funnel a little bit, marketing automation wise, creating nurture workflows. I've noticed that a lot of the software that marketers use is starting to do what everybody's doing and put native AI into their software. So for example, if you're using HubSpot and the little lightning bolt comes up, it can use predictive text or try to write some copy for you in an email or into a form or a web page or what have you. And I think all of those things are are useful in their own way. I, I wouldn't trust them with my life or anything. You still have to sort of do a final edit and audit. But it is a little bit of a time saver. And again, because I'm not a 
you know, Fortune 100 with a billion dollar marketing budget and, and a team of minions and interns beneath me, every little bit matters. So if I can gain a little bit of an edge, I'm going to use it. We're with you there. There are some things that it can make easier, but there are no shortcuts to creating good content. It's kind of but if there were, what a world that would be. Maybe someday. someday. We'll see. Yeah. When we all get the, you know, brain implants or things like that, then it's really going to be flowing. Man, that's where my mind's going too. Suddenly it does become about who's the loudest now. I'm just, I'm going to be a great marketer in that world. When I can just like, sh- <laughs> like mind shout over everybody else and win, it's going to be a great day for me. You made you to Ryan to create some content marketing sci-fi, some sort of, some sort of content creation sci-fi crossover, I think is in your future after PBM book two. I mean, just just watch Minority Report, the way that they've got like, you know, the eye tracking as you walk through the the streets and like there's just random people shouting at you with your name. And like it's like it's like the personalized sort of ads that we have now, but in real life. Yeah. And then, you know, like Tom Cruise swaps his eyes out for some random other eyes because he doesn't want to be tracked. And now all of a sudden he's getting like somebody else's like, you know, Internet ads, basically. That's the future I want to live in. But Black Mirror's had a couple of good episodes. If you guys watch Black Mirror, some definitely marketing adjacent type of episodes where, you know, the things that you consume and the world that you live in becomes a, a complete overlap of like you're basically living in an ad for yourself yep. 24 7 365 what was the one with the uh we're, we're starting to tread dangerously yeah. close to that yeah we are what was the one with the the lady from Shit's creek is that one of the ones you're thinking of where like they turn her into a netflix yeah, show one, yeah that was the one of the newer ones her basically in real time it was being turned into a netflix show by ai and salma hayek was playing it but like sign her digital rights away and then the real salma hayek was all upset and they like teamed up to try to take down netflix but then you know without giving up any spoilers to people who haven't watched in the last eight months it just sort of snowballs from there and gets real wild and the the one with the with the social media score quotient and that decided what you could and couldn't do in society oh yeah was a little disturbing too the dallas bryce howard episode yes yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I, I think it's a, it's a successful podcast episode if we are forced to, at the end of the day, compare our, our industry to some of the worst uh, technological horror yeah. concepts that yeah. we can think of. So, good job, game. Yeah. Hope everyone's happy. Great success. Yeah, Black Mirror is tough for me. I have to come up for air sometimes. All right. Great conversation. Jeff, before we let you go, though, we're going to jump into what we call our lightning round. Okay. Jeff, what was the last thing that you searched for? The last thing that I searched for, I searched for the hours of my barber because I got a haircut. Okay. So I wanted to see what time she would get there. She was four minutes late this morning. Got it. Yeah, it's like walk-in only. It's this little place in my town, $12 cash. It's the best. I oh, love that's this lady. awesome. And it's the fastest haircut too. And I think it oh, looks, looks great. Uh, for the, for those listeners out there that can't see it, it looks fantastic. Great $12. She's char- I'm gonna I'm gonna seek her out and tell her she should charge more. All right, uh, Jeff, are there any books or movies uh, that have made you a better marketer? Well, I could cheat here and say Black Mirror. <laughs> it makes me more ruthless. Now, there was a book that I this was sort of part of my intro to data driven marketing, but that Professor Jake Pacini for his class recommended we read a book called Predictive Analytics: The Power to Predict Who Clicks, Buys, Lies, or Dies by Eric Siegel. And it's a little bit dense if you're not super into data-driven marketing, but, you know, for me, it gave me a lot of ideas on, okay, here's, you know, I, I hear Jake talk about this stuff in class. Here's real world ideas of people who are actually executing this. It is a little bit consumer focused, but obviously as we move forward into the future, B2B marketing is becoming more and more driven by segmentation and profiling. So there's a lot 
of lessons that I took from that book that I do use in my day-to-day. You know, Jeff, the subtitle of my book contains the words or words, depending on how you classify a hyphenation, data-driven. I think we might be on the same page for a lot of things here. It does. Sounds like it. I have not gotten to read your book yet, Ryan, but I'll I'll grab it. That's what I was trying to do. I was trying to trap you in that (laughs) embarrassing admission (laughs) and... Look at it. Guys, what a show. This Guilty. has been a great episode. I'm a very candid person. I will expose my flaws to the to the world on this podcast. If it makes you feel any better, I haven't read whatever book you were talking about either. I have. It, 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 that's like 50% as bad because I didn't write it. So it's a little bit less embarrassing. <laughs> no. All right. Last question, Jeff. Over your career, are there any marketing, SEO, or content myths that you've busted? I don't think I'm smart enough to have busted them, but through trial and error and just, you know, doing doing my thing as a performance marketer who's always trying to get better and convert more leads and and ultimately close more revenue. Just trying to balance good and bad traffic or really, you know, you you want it to be 100% quality because then you're reaching your persona, you're reaching your audience and it's going to result in high quality conversions. And having worked with, you know, various copywriters, agencies, etc. in writing technical content I don't know that this is really busting a myth, but just being super cognizant of what that content is going to look like to an algorithm and who it's going to be placed in front of and who it's going to be served to. Using that augmented reality example from earlier, you know, we got an inquiry from a fairly, I won't dime anybody out here. We got a, an inquiry from a fairly well-known celebrity that people people would recognize their name and they were doing a comic book and they wanted to turn it into like mixed reality. This was about two or three years ago. And we were like, you know, the tool probably could do that. It's really more designed for, you know, engineering and industry. But while we're here, like, how the heck did you even find us? Like, how did you learn about us? How did how did this land in front of you as a potential solution? And it turns out that they were Googling and they found our page through, you know, through organic search, came to it and said, hey, this sounds like something I might be able to use, fill out the form. You got to call with them and they're, you know, publicist and their their designer. We ended up not being able to do anything with them, but I, it was very interesting. It kind of made my head spin of like, you know, not, not a super qualified lead, very interesting. You know, obviously there's others like him who are out there searching for this stuff and coming to our page. And it kind of made me rethink of it, like, you know, traffic for our AR content in general. It was like, most of this might not be usable. People are, this is a hot button topic and people are interested in it at a super high level and they're not coming to buy this very specific, you know, yep. industry specific tool that we're marketing. So that's it's a, a big statistics challenge. game, right? I mean, like the sheer number of people who even could want to buy it are so vanishingly small compared yep. to, you know, people who heard about it in, in a, you know, in Wired and want to learn more about it or whatever. Yeah, that's a real challenge. Yep. Real challenge. Yep. That's a great example. All right. Great conversation, Jeff. We really appreciate it. Yeah, Drew, Ryan, thanks so much for having me on. This was awesome. And Ryan, looking forward to reading your book. Going right up to the top of the Kindle list. Right. Mm, yeah, we'll I'm send gonna, you a free copy. Yeah, I'm right. going to drop it here. It is. Oh, you if, guys if you go best. to the Demand Jump homepage, as of today, you can download a free Kindle copy. The website. Cool. No, 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 no. This is special just for you, Jeff. Quit ruining this, Drew. <laughs> Good stuff. Can we edit that part out? Yeah. <laughs> thanks again, guys. This has been awesome. Are you ready to dive even deeper into pillar-based marketing? Here's your chance. The brand new book, Pillar-Based Marketing, a data-driven methodology for SEO and content that actually works by co-hosts Ryan Brock and Christopher Day is now available in paperback, hardcover, and ebook editions. Find it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or look for the link in the show notes.